Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Dr. Emma Beck is a physiotherapist and lecturer at Griffith University, Australia. She specialises in paediatrics or children's physiotherapy. Today she joins us to talk about how meeting gross motor milestones and staying active and healthy fit into the ballet studio. I hope you enjoy this episode. Point Pod. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. So I guess for our audience, Emma, I'd like to ask a little bit about what a paediatric physio does and your professional journey so far. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my name is Emma Beck and I am a physio who specialises in working with kids. Um, so that's working with infants, children and adolescents. I've been working for about a decade now in physiotherapy. Can you believe it? Um, yes. And mainly, <laughs> mainly in a private practice setting, so in the community. Um, I have a particular interest in working with children who have disabilities. Um, I've worked in cerebral palsy, acquired brain injury, uh, muscular dystrophy. I manage a lot of children who are on the autism spectrum. Um, and I also really enjoy I also really enjoy working with children um, who have pain related conditions such as arthritis um, or chronic pain. So I still continue to work in a very small capacity. However, my main job is an academic now and I focus on supporting the next generation of physiotherapists um, at uni so they can gain the knowledge and skills to manage a caseload, uh, which includes children and adolescents. I also have the opportunity within my academic role to progress paediatric research. Uh, I did complete my PhD back in 2017 before I started at university. And my PhD looked at a web-based therapy for children with acquired brain injuries. I now have three PhD students of my own who I co-supervise, um, and they all have topics in paediatrics, uh, such as bronchiectasis, which is a lung condition, cerebral palsy, and then children who have survived brain cancer. And they're predominantly focusing on therapeutic exercise and the benefits of therapeutic exercise. 
They are wow. <laughs> I it's can, a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. I, I can believe actually, Emma, that that it's been ten years. Um, yes. I can remember probably in in, a, in my first week of undergraduate physiotherapy, I met Emma probably in an, an anatomy lecture or something like that. I think so. Um, and we used to study together. So I've known Emma for quite a long time. Um, and we still run together now as well. So. We do. <laughs> and enjoy coffee. We enjoy a lot of coffee. Um, yeah, we could pretty much give you a list of all of the cafes in Brisbane that, you know, are along a particular strip of the river. But I think um, w- one of the things I'm really interested in, so Emma, you obviously work with lots of different children that have lots of different conditions. Um, so a lot of neurodevelopmental conditions, obviously respiratory conditions. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned before, like chronic pain and joint um joint sort of issues so things like um juvenile idiopathic arthritis and those conditions um so you're probably one of the things that's really important in for a, a kids physio or a physio that works with kids is also being able to recognize what normal um movement is and what sort of um like the normal milestones and normal gross gross motor sort of development patterns are. And I think for ballet teachers particularly, um, that's also really important to know. What kind of light can you shed for us there? Well, that's a really great question, first of all. And I think when we talk about development, we need to acknowledge that development is dynamic and there's significant variability between children as they grow. Um, But in general, for children who do have no concerns, there is generally a pattern of movement that all children follow throughout those first few years of life. Um, Some key gross motor milestones for teachers who may be listening include for our very young infants, I'd like to see that they've got good head control by about four months and that then they progress to sitting between four to nine months. And then children should really be walking alone between eight to 18 months. And then as we get a little bit older, I like to see that they're running and jumping off the ground by three years old, and they should also be able to go up and down those stairs uh, well by that age too. By four years, uh, they're developing more of those skills and they should be able to catch and throw and kick a ball well. And then by five years, they should be able to run and turn on the spot really quickly. They should be able to balance on one leg for 10 seconds at a time. That's uh, something that uh, ballet te- teachers would be able it's to recognise. a lot recognize. of balancing on one leg in ballet, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, walking heel-toe along the li- a line too. Um, and they should be able to hop on one leg for at least five times, preferably 10 times by five years. And then skipping in a step-hop, step-hop pattern. That can emerge anywhere between five to six years. But we, I do notice clinically uh, that females do it earlier than males. How interesting. Hmm. Do you treat many young ballerinas in your clinic or children that participate in ballet? We do have a number of children that participate in ballet and they all have a variety of abilities and they absolutely love it. <laughs> I'm going to throw this is this question just come off the top of my head and I I know you'll be able to answer it. So when people say, "Oh, I could dance before I could walk." Is that a thing or is that just like a, an expression? I 
can appreciate where that saying comes from because when we talk about development, we do know that some children may skip milestones and that's okay. So for example, crawling, um, not all children will crawl and we do know that 10% of the population who are typically developing skip the crawling milestone altogether. And that's a common question that I get when parents come into clinic. They say to me, my child's not crawling yet. Should I be concerned? And we will do a holistic assessment and it's not just looking at that crawling movement. Um, We also look at all of the other movements that they are able to do as well. Um, So I suppose that's probably where... um, yeah, I suppose that's probably where it comes to, yeah. where it comes from. Yeah, it's funny. It's really funny. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, you see kids sort of responding to music and listening to music and moving in time to music. They might not necessarily be dancing, like they might be sitting down where they're doing it or holding onto furniture while they're doing it or something. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Um, and that's actually something else that I guess I'd, I'm interested in. So I guess it is normal for children to hear music and respond to music and yes. and listen to music. And at what, what age does that typically happen? It happens right from in utero, I suppose. <laughs> um, but they, um, as they grow and develop, they'll be able to respond more to music and be more interactive with you and by two to three years old they'll be talking and so they may be even able to recite some of those early lyrics to to, uh, nursery rhymes for example. Cool and so I guess in for children who might have um, a hearing impediment like I guess is that one of the things that a parent or a teacher might look out for so if you're putting music on and they're not necessarily responding to it or they're not kind of bopping along or like I don't know is that is that something that might a parent or a ballet teacher might clue into? Potentially, yes. Mm. Um, it depends on the type of music and mm. a child's interest in music and as well as their exposure to music as well. So we know with development after the first year of life that um, their exposure to different skills really impacts how they develop those future milestones. So if you're a family that really loves to go outdoors and go running and bike riding and playing at the park, we know that those children are going to be really good at gross motor skills. But you might be involved in a family who really love board games and fine motor activities and arts and crafts. So when we do an assessment, we'll notice that those fine motor skills are really developed and they might even be a little bit better for their age, but they only perform at that low end of normal development for their gross motor milestones. And it's not because they're necessarily delayed, it's just that's what their family environment looks like. And I think the same is true for that exposure to music and dance too. Yeah, cool. So basically you get better at what you practice. Absolutely. (laughs) And exposure, exposure to different skills. Cool. So I guess one of the other things that we probably both see in clinic in one way or another, going back to, I guess, normal movement and normal development, what are some growth phases that um, that young children go through and, and adolescents and go through and what what sort of things can dance teachers and parents and physiotherapists working with children look out for? Are there any particular ages that we need to be mindful of in terms of, I guess being mindful of of training load at different times or being being mindful of fatigue or being mindful of aches and pains and things that pop up when we're growing 
Absolutely. I suppose probably we should acknowledge what a growth spurt is to start off with. Um, And that's when your child goes through a very rapid period of development. And that includes an increase, a rapid increase in height and weight within a very short period of time. So right from birth, we know in those first 12 months, that's a rapid period of development and they grow quite quickly. Um, And then from about 12 months to five years, that's another period of rapid development as well. Not as rapid though as the first 12 months. And then really between five years to until they reach puberty, they... uh, um, the, they'll have regular increases in height and weight and it's usually about six centimetres per year. So it's fairly consistent between those ages and then they have another rapid period or a growth spurt around that time of puberty and as we know, girls go through that growth spurt earlier than boys. Interestingly enough, what I see in clinic is that when a child's going through a growth spurt, they may not be as coordinated as they usually are. Um, And that's usually because their body is adjusting to a new centre of mass, their legs are longer and their arms are longer. And so that door that was only three centimetres away is now only two centimetres away. So you might find that they're tripping or falling more frequently. Um, And... But however, it may not um, only be due to coordination. We do know that when children go through growth spurt, uh, they go through a number of different cognitive and social and emotional changes. And so that can also impact their motor development uh, when we're looking at assessing these children. Cool. And so I guess there are a few different sort of phases of growth and a few different ages where um, we might notice that someone's ballet technique or performance might you know have some catching up to do too I suppose like yes yeah yeah cool and so I guess in the clinic in terms of musculoskeletal conditions um like I know like we always associate things like severs and Osgood sliders so like those kind of conditions where tendons are inserting to bone and when children are growing obviously you know um there's a bit of a mismatch in different tissues that grow at different times so like bones and tendons and muscles and things like that can get a bit achy um what are some I guess the the other really difficult thing I think sometimes with kids is working out when something actually hurts and whether it's sort of do I go to see a physio about this issue with 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 my dancer or do I just kind of oh you know have a spoonful of concrete and push on through. Absolutely. (laughs) And some kids I think are a little bit more attuned to, you know, different feelings and sensations in their body than others as well. Um, What are some signs, like maybe some non-verbal signs that parents and dance teachers could look out for in, in kids who might be in pain? Absolutely. So I think a hesitation to participate in ballet or dance classes is one of the most obvious signs. Um, You also want to look out for uh, sleeping patterns and whether they're sleeping well at night or whether um, perhaps that's in pain is impacting their sleep quality as well. Um, That is a a, a red flag, what we call, um, that we would definitely encourage you to go and seek a referral to a physiotherapist or your uh, local GP. Mm. Um, You might notice behavioural difficulties too. 
Um, and the other noticeable ones we find is significant differences between sides when they are participating in dance classes as well. So um, usually we always have a dominant leg and a non-dominant leg and there will be minor differences. But if you're noticing significant differences, that's probably warrants referral to a physio. And I suppose in terms of they children, it's always the active children that always uh, present to physiotherapy unfortunately Um, and so we do notice that these happen more frequently when there's a significant increase in activity loading so for example they've got school sports going on they've got HPE a cross-country carnival and they're also doing dancing three times a week so we'll work with those children to make sure that they can participate in activities safely um, but also monitor that load and get them back um, and rehab them so they can get back to doing what they love to do. Yeah it's I mean it's something that I definitely always ask my patients when I'm talking to them is just about like what a week looks like you know how much recovery time you're getting because I suppose when we're kids we're still growing a lot right so your body needs actually time to recover and sort of cement those changes in a way so sometimes when you overcommit (laughs) to lots of different physical activity it's interesting um also like you sort of refer to like having a cross country and and ballet class and I mean, obviously there are benefits to physical activity. Um, I probably see more of the people who are doing a lot more than the basic minimum requirements. Yes. Um, what What is the minimum level of physical activity for, for a child and for an adolescent? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so for children aged 5 to 17 years, they should be participating in 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity every day. So that's where they're huffing and they're puffing and they're struggling to keep a conversation. We do know that they'll get some of that at school, but they also need to do something after school as well or before school perhaps. And then what's not more commonly known is that they should also be engaging in three strengthening activities a week for muscle and bone. So I find community activities such as dancing and gymnastics and karate are really great to get into uh, because they're high impact and they also involve body weight strength work. And so that's important to incorporate into your usual week as well. That is a really important point. I mean, I definitely look at at a lot of um, bone injuries and bone stress injuries and it's always interesting to think about, you know, what we can do to prevent these and I think like sometimes it starts with like creating good habits when we're younger too. No, that's very valuable information. Absolutely. And I think it brings me to another point as a paediatric physio that I think we do treat a lot of children with different conditions and perhaps disabilities but we can also see children who are well so perhaps they do want some ideas for strength and conditioning to prevent future injuries or perhaps they might just like to learn a new skill such as bike riding so um, at our private practice we teach children on school holidays um, to teach them how to ride a bike with two wheels as well Uh, so we not only see children who do have conditions but we also see children who are well as too. Yeah absolutely and I guess there's sort of as you were saying before like there's a spectrum of like what's normal and what um, you know variation in timing of of different 
gross motor skills. And I guess if if some kids aren't necessarily practicing things like riding a bike because they don't have somewhere to ride a bike or they don't have a bike, obviously, even though that's like a gross motor milestone, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing if you can't do it if you've never practiced it before. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And we do know that there's even differences between countries. So in Europe, the average age for riding a bike is four and a half years, while in Australia, it's five and a half years. And that's because within their culture, bike riding is really important. It's a primary means of getting from point A to point B. But in Australia, it's quite a different uh, environment um, and is not as common um, for a multitude of different reasons. But you're absolutely correct that those gross motor skills, um, we need to consider the culture that they're in too. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, like I think the same with swimming in Australia. We we really prioritise swimming skills here because obviously we have like, you know, a lot of beaches and whereas I know that in some countries access to water is not, you know, the risk of drowning is not as great, I Exactly. Guess. <laughs> so we don't prioritise learning yes. that, that gross motor skill. That's really interesting. So I guess now going back to the dance studio because it's yes. really cool to think about, you know, kids as, as, as just moving beings generally and having dance as a nice slice of that movement pie. But I guess... Some information for dance teachers. So often in the dance studio, they're able to identify like atypical movement patterns. So like Mm -hmm. you were saying before, when someone's in pain and they might be favouring one side or not be as willing to participate and they might not necessarily be saying something. But what are some other things that you found that dance teachers have picked up on? Like I know one example from, from my practice students who are maybe a little bit older in their teenage years, like scoliosis is one of those things a dance teacher will notice fairly soon, you know, often before parents do because their students are wearing leotards so they can see the spine a lot more clearly than a parent would all the time. Um, But, yeah, what are some other examples of, of atypical movement patterns that dance teachers might pick up on? Absolutely. And I think they're experts, dance teachers are experts in movement and then they're perfect people to pick up movement difficulties. First of all, I think children lagging behind their peers or seeming different to their peers is an important one um, to refer onwards. So if you notice a child um, who can't keep up consistently um, or their movements are different to others, that would warrant referral. Uh, Children who are really clumsy or perhaps fall a lot in dance class, I would also refer through. Um, Perhaps children who fatigue easily and need lots of breaks. Maybe they might even lean on people or objects or on the bar a lot and you notice that getting through a dance class is really hard for them. Again, similar to children who present in pain, if children present with significant differences between sides or if they present with a limp to class, that would warrant referral to a physio. Even children who may be unwilling to participate in a dance class. So maybe it's due to pain or maybe it's um, the fact that they are really struggling to keep up in class. So it might present as behavioural difficulties too. They also then might have difficulties with what we call motor planning or motor processing. Um, Perhaps they might have difficulties copying the teacher and the different dance moves that are going on. Maybe they might be able to follow one-step instructions really well, but two, three or four-step instructions which are more complex are quite hard for them to do. So that's when I would refer through as well when you're noticing that they're having difficulties copying Um, And then the obvious one that we spoke about before is if they're in pain to refer through. 
Mm. And so I'm, I'm sort of thinking about this from a dance teacher's perspective too. Like you're always going to have somebody in your class that's kind of off with the fairies. I mean, we're talking like, we're talking young dance dance students, yes. like ages two to maybe six or seven, right? So yes. like maybe you're doing like a, um, like a tiny tots class or like an introduction to dance or like introduction to movement class. So I suppose that's when a lot of those, um, I guess, neurodevelopmental conditions are identified, like not necessarily from birth. So um, things like you mentioned before, people who might be on the autism spectrum or um, yeah, other things, even cerebral palsy sometimes is diagnosed quite, quite, I guess, late, I say late, but I mean, you know, beyond the age of two or three or... Yes, particularly if they're mild. So we are really great at picking them up before one year of age, but Mm. sometimes we have children that come through, present quite late. It is more uncommon now, but it does occasionally happen. So you are correct in that. Yeah. And I guess like, yeah, going back to that that young age group, I guess they are an, an easily distracted age group (laughs) there are a lot of there's a lot of like stimulus in a ballet class there's other other people you're interacting with and they're not people you're used to and there's different music and different colors and different costumes and things but I guess a dance teacher who sort of works with students for like like over a term for example you'd be able to see maybe somebody who was lagging behind their peers as you say or struggling to keep up absolutely and I probably mentioned a lot of activities to do with gross motor skills but they're also very well placed to notice children who perhaps um, by five years old don't know their colours or have uh, difficulties responding to music when it's played. Um, So also looking at those visual impairments and hearing impairments and um, if there's also a a multitude of factors that they're noticing as well Um, and they might just be small signs and it's worth getting it checked out early at least Um, and then if there's uh, no cause for concern then that's absolutely okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Like what's the worst that can happen if you mention something to a parent or if a parent notices something to like getting it checked, it's it's often better just to have that peace of mind. (laughs) Exactly. And again, as I said, it really depends on that environmental exposure um, and whether they're a, a type of child who really enjoys dancing and perhaps doesn't enjoy sitting down and learning their colours. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> dance, dance, dance. Okay, stop. No, really stop now. <laughs> the I might not stopped. be interested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true. Or like maybe there's someone out the window that they're waving to or something. Exactly. Yep. Very, very true. So thinking about some of the things that ballet teachers can actually do to help include these students in their class so say for example you know that you know that one of your students has a a neurodevelopmental condition or maybe a hearing impairment or a visual impairment what are some of the things that ballet teachers can do to help include these students absolutely I think first and foremost, giving a good demonstration at the start is vital. Uh, Making sure that you're using both visual demonstrations, so you performing that activity or that dance move, as well as verbal instructions, so you're catering to more children. But also making sure you give that demonstration in a position that all children can see. So there's no point doing it up the front if you've got a child down the back who really needs that visual instruction as well. And it may mean that you might need to repeat it a couple of times. 
I really like using visual aids in clinic and I think this can really help dance teachers as well. So it might be markers on the floor or sometimes it might even be doing a visual schedule board of the activities that they've got planned for that dance class and having that particular child tick it off as an activity can help. So I use a simple whiteboard um, in clinic and write the activities down or for those children that can't read, I'll draw pictures or sometimes with laminated cards and you might be able to do that as a dance teacher with the different activities that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. I do know that dance classes are very, can be very bright and crowded with lots of different pieces of equipment. But if you can limit distractions within a dance class, particularly when you're working with little ones, that will help them to focus on what they need to do and it'll stop them from getting distracted too easily. When you are in a dance class, it may be necessary to stop the music and then talk rather than talk over the music. It might be really hard for some children to concentrate on both the music and your speaking. So if you do need, if you are finding it's difficult for them to understand, pausing the music, speaking and then restarting it can really help. I find that children who have motor processing difficulties or motor planning um, difficulty so uh, difficulties coordinating their body movements breaking down those steps and doing it one step at a time can be really helpful and you might notice that it's not only helpful for that child but the rest of the children in the class too so you're achieving that sequence of movements that you really want and practice is really important too and taking the time so they have enough time to practice those dance move moves is really important and then for those children if you're going to perform in a different environment making sure that they have time to practice that dance move not only within their normal classroom but then up on stage as well because sometimes we know that skills don't transfer from one environment to the next environment I actually have a really embarrassing story really embarrassing confession (laughs) it's quite funny I think when I was when I was quite young I remember in a Christmas concert I was dressed up as a mouse and we had four mice in my ballet class and we had practiced in the studio. Yes. Like you, this is exactly what you said. We'd practiced in the studio and we had four markers on the ground and we each yes. had a marker to stand on. <laughs> and then when we got up on stage, I knew where my marker was and I went straight to my marker. Nobody else remembered what to oh, do. No. So we were all on stage <laughs> and everybody's just sort of like trying to stand on my square. And I was like, no, 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 that's not your square. Like and sort of nudging them over to the other square. Like I practiced it on this square. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was I was must have looked like the bossiest child in the class. But I was like, no, this is my this is my cross. I know where I'm supposed to be. Like get onto your cross. Exactly. Yep. That's such um yeah a great example yep. of making sure you practice in the environment where yeah. you're going to perform. I don't know if it was a dress rehearsal or if I was if I dreamt it or something like that, but I just have this vivid memory. Maybe my mother will confirm. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Oh dear. Um, I've got yeah. a few more ideas. Yeah. yeah. No, that's okay. I think when you're thinking about dance moves, you might need to increase or decrease the distance that children need to move depending on their needs. So perhaps they're in a walker or in a wheelchair and if you're moving quite a distance away, it may not be as achievable for those children. So just bringing it back a little bit can really help them participate. Or perhaps that child does like a little bit of extra movement. So you might increase that distance um, depending on what they enjoy. 
I think really, and dance teachers are great at this, but just making it fun um, and using play as a means to achieve those skills. And for particularly our three, four and five years olds, they really love imagination. So if you can include dance and imagination, that really goes a long way with that age group. For if you are working with children who do use assistive devices such as walkers, wheelchairs or canes, do be mindful and always ask um, before you move their assistive device because that's an extension of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'd also like to remind all dance teachers and, and therapists as well that sometimes disabilities aren't easily noticed um, and they might be hidden. So, for example, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So mm. be mindful of that too. Yeah. And is that something that um, you would recommend? So say a dance teacher has like a um, pre-enrolment medical form or something like that. Would that be something that a lot of parents would tend to disclose or not necessarily? Like what? I think it depends on the family dynamics, but I always... um, My saying is always the more information, the better. Mm. Um, And that if you know more about that child, you can support them better. And if you do know that the child has a support team around them, absolutely contact the physiotherapist or the occupational therapist working with them and find out what works best in sessions for them and then adopt that into your dance classes as well. I work really closely with occupational therapists. They're really good at regulating um, emotional and behavioural difficulties and I'll make sure that the same rules that apply in OT also apply in my physio sessions as well and that gives children stability and consistency between rules in different environments because change can change is hard for us as adults and change can be really hard for kids too when they're trying to learn to do the right thing yeah that's actually that's a super good tip so for example if you know that somebody is seeing an occupational therapist or even like a speech language language pathologist or a physio I guess yeah I guess you would probably all go through the family to do this rather absolutely. than contacting them directly. But exactly. you could absolutely yes, gain just... Gain consent from the yeah. family first. <laughs> Ask, I should have said that. No, <laughs> I mean, it's not always an instinctive thing to do. Um, but yeah, like definitely ask mum or dad sort of, oh, like what do they do in physio? Because they're probably, I guess, almost used to that. Yeah, like you say, that routine and that that kind of, yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Um, and you're probably just going to, you know, I guess it's not going... It's probably also going to be beneficial for other students in the class to have like a similar kind of structure as well. Yes, I do notice that anything that I do add in my sessions if I am working with a group of children. So I not only as a peds physio work one-on-one, but I can work in group classes as well. Um, That if we do something for one child, it usually benefits the other children as well. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that way the child would also feel more included too because they would see that it's not just a rule for them, right, or a like a, a habit or a routine that they're kind of building. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think also being mindful that when we children are participating in dance classes, it's participating and moving to that song, for example. It's not 
pressing the stop and play button. That's not participating in a dance class and sitting to the side. Mm. Um, participating actually means participating in that activity. Um, so a good example we see is in sport that they'll do the, the recording um, for a sports event. And that's not really them getting out there and doing that. So you want to modify the activity so they, they're able to do it. So it might be making some movements easier or perhaps some movements harder for other children and adapting it. And I know that dance teachers are excellent at adapting that. Um, and yes, through the families, you can work with the physio, for example, in how to adapt certain movements if you are finding it difficult too. I know I worked with a... Uh, and a teenager um, and she has Shakomari tooth mm. um, which means that she has weakness in her hands and her arms and she was uh, uh, practicing a dance mm. um, for one of her assignments and she came into physio and that was one of her goals is to to be able to do this dance class but she was having difficulties with moving getting up from the ground and yeah. so I were, she showed me the dance and all of the dance moves that were involved. Involved, And then what I helped her do is modify those moves. Um, so, for example, getting up from the ground, she couldn't do it just using her legs. So I got her to use her hands as well and put them strategically in place. So they looked like a proper dance move, but it was actually helping her get up, the, get up off the ground more easily. And we just adapted a few things in that dance routine and no one would have noticed in the audience yeah I mean that's the thing at the end of the day like I guess dance teachers often have like really high expectations of their students and like you say it might be a matter of making things more challenging for students that you know are able to do it but yeah your point around participation is is really really important I think um yeah like I guess parents send their students to to ballet classes because they want to be dancing and sometimes it might take a little while to find maybe a studio that's accessible or a studio that's got like an appropriate class or that kind of thing but yeah I think also we shouldn't think of um, there being sort of barriers to participation so I guess it's always worth asking a ballet studio or you know, if exactly. your child, yeah, like, what are some ways that my that my child can actually be involved and be involved in a way that everybody else is involved, rather than, yeah, absolutely, mm. and just being open minded and mm. being creative, and you'll find that probably your class ends up being more fun because mm. you have to think outside the box. <laughs> yeah, and I think dancers are pretty creative people. Yes, they are. <laughs> Absolutely. Much more than physios. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. Um, I think it depends on, I think it depends on the physio. Creativity makes a job interesting at the end it of the does. day. It does. Absolutely. And that's why we're still here after 10 years. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you mentioned before um, working with OTs and other health professionals. So what are some other health professionals that you would work in conjunction with if you were seeing um a child for, say, a neurodevelopmental condition or um, even some you mentioned before, like the the chronic pain sort of conditions or arthritis conditions, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I've already mentioned occupational therapists. Mm. So Mm. they work um, and help support people in their occupations. And so for kids, you might be wondering, oh, what's their occupation? They don't go to work. (laughs) (laughs) And their occupation is play Mm. and childcare and school. So OTs help to work work with children to be able to play and, and do those things that they want to be able to do that are important to them in life. So we do work really closely with occupational 
occupational therapists. We also work with podiatrists um, in making sure that they've got good supportive shoes or perhaps they might need some extra support in their shoes like orthotics um, or uh, maybe they might need a little bit more and we go down the track um, of engaging with an orthotist um, to look at orthotics or an, uh, um, su- such as an ankle foot orthoses. Um, We also work with the medical team, so perhaps they've got a local GP or a paediatrician or a pain specialist, for example. And then another one perhaps could be a dietitian as well. Uh, And as I know, um, being a dance physio, you probably work very closely with dietitians to make sure that children are getting adequate nutrition for all of that physical activity that they're doing. Yeah, and, you know, I think... I I also work a lot with podiatrists too because obviously once you start point work and even before that there are um, yeah there's a a wide range of podiatric conditions and things that need to be treated but yeah and with with doctors and GPs too so yeah that multidisciplinary approach is really interesting and do you work with speech pathologists as well sometimes? Yes we do particularly if they've got feeding difficulties Mm. or speech delays Mm. or difficulties Uh, with their receptive or expressive language. So receptive uh, language is being able to understand language and then receptive language is being able to say different things. So, yes, we absolutely work with uh, speech and language therapists as well too. Yeah, cool. I'd have to say maybe in my musical theatre sort of work I do that but maybe not so much for a ballet dancer they don't tend to say say much on stage um yeah so is there anything else that you would like to add that we haven't I know you came super prepared as 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 you used to do to all of our study sessions at university (laughs) um is there anything else that I've missed yeah I suppose I would like to add a little bit more about Mm. what a paediatric physio does Mm. and that I mentioned lots of different conditions and um, some of you listeners, you may have seen a physio yourself um, for whether it be a sore back or a sore knee and you might be wondering, oh, is that what paediatric physios do too? And I suppose we are a physio, um, but we just work with kids. Um, But we do know that kids are not mini adults um, and they move and they think differently and that's why they need a specialised approach. Um, And we we look at optimising movement, so not just for adults but for children as well. And that we do work across the spectrum. So infants that are born really, really young can present with different conditions. So, for example, congenital muscular torticollis is a good one where they get a a tightness in some neck muscles and they have difficulties moving their head. We also work with infants who are born prematurely because we know that these infants, so they're born before term and term is 40 weeks. And we especially work with those who are born extremely preterm, so those who are born less than 32 weeks. Um, We know that they're four times more likely to experience motor delays in their milestones and they're six times more likely to have conditions such as developmental coordination disorder. And I touched on some coordination difficulties and motor motor processing difficulties earlier so we work with those types of children as well but you know we can also help children with balance difficulties uh, fine motor delays as well so that's working um, with those smaller muscles in hand so perhaps it might be uh, riding or tying up their shoelaces or doing their tie for school for example Um, we do 
we can help children who have different joint conditions uh, like arthritis and muscle and nerve problems, give general physical activity advice um, and then also help to recover after surgery too. So some children do need surgery throughout their life and we can be there before and after as well. Yeah, I mean, that's such a broad spectrum and it's a really important place um, in the healthcare world. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Emma, for joining me today. I, I usually ask my guests um, what their preferred pair of point shoes is, but I know that <laughs> I do know that you actually, and this is strange, but you, you know, you're one of my guests that hasn't yes. danced on point. No, I but have not. You have taken dance lessons. So, oh, very few dance lessons. <laughs> <laughs> what I will say is that children need good supportive shoes. And so I think finding a pair of good supportive shoes to promote their movement is the best. <laughs> I'll, I'll, let, I'll put a... Be they, point, be they point shoes or other? <laughs> be they point shoes or other? It is absolutely vital. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent, an excellent way to answer that question. Thank you so much for joining me, Emma. It's been a real Thank pleasure. Thank you. No, I really enjoyed coming in this afternoon. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 